Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. We are so excited that you are joining us for the show today. This podcast aims to explore a biblical life view in a conversational tone. Let's join our host and founder of Servants of Grace, Dave Jenkins, for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast. And with me today, I have uh, Christopher Juan. Christopher, welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, sir. Oh, thanks for having me, Dave. Yeah, man. Hey, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your life, and uh, what you're working on, some of the current ministry projects, and those kind of things? Yeah, Dave. I am a, I'm a currently speak on this issue of sexuality. Uh, I have a new book coming out, uh, but I also teach at Moody Bible Institute right now in Chicago. Wonderful, wonderful. I I really have enjoyed this book that we're going to talk about today, and I've enjoyed uh, being able to follow you on Twitter for probably a couple of years. I think we connected through one one of my articles on Covenant Eyes or something like that a while ago. So yeah, that was uh, really encouraging that you shared that. So thank you, brother. Um, Can you uh, tell us a little bit about this new work, uh, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, Sex, Desires, and Relationship Shaped by God's Grand Story, why you wrote it, and how it's how you hope it'll be received yeah actually this this new book is flowing out of my first book that i wrote it was actually a book that i wrote with my mother uh, out of our country and it's just uh as the subtitle is uh, a geisha's journey to god a broken mother's search for hope it's really just a memoir telling about my journey of faith my mother's journey of faith and how it really started with me coming out of the closet to my parents and through that crisis my none of us were christian but my mother comes to faith my father comes to faith and just through just God's miraculous patience and grace drawing me to himself over time and over to prison. I mean, it was, I was a mess in drugs, drug dealing, and my mom was just praying for me the whole time. But there's a, in the memoir, I I wrote one chapter toward the end that I, and I called it Holy Sexuality. And it was just, it was me thinking about what, what is God's standard? If, if same-sex relationships are not God's will, uh, then what is it precisely that God is calling us to? And I, and I think a lot of Christians are wrestling with that. And sometimes maybe come, uh, they sort of jump to conclusions. Uh, you know, if same-sex relationships, if homosexuality is not God's will, then heterosexuality must be. And I just was discontent with that paradigm. And I thought, I, I, I didn't feel anything where this is precisely what God is calling us to, because we think, well, heterosexuality must be God's will. But if we say that, we could be inadvertently, uh, you know, turning a blind eye or saying it's okay to be in an adulterous relationship that's between a man and a woman or uh, sex before marriage. Uh, so it's, it's, heterosexuality is not precise enough. And so that's why I came up with this, this concept that I call holy sexuality, which is chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage. But I only just briefly introduced that concept and I knew I, I really needed to flesh that out. So this is what this next book is. Uh, it's Holy Sexuality in the Gospel. It's essentially a theology of sexuality that, that approaches the this topic with systematic theology. I think we have several good books that address the different passages, uh, you know, answering the ethical question, you know, does the Bible really condemn same-sex relationships? Uh, Obviously the answer is yes. And and I felt like those are very, those are necessary, but we can't build a a theology simply upon ethics. We can't build it simply upon just uh, a handful of important passages. Uh, So that's where I came in and said, approaching it from systematic theology, especially my first few chapters, um, I, I, I say, uh, 
we touch on theological anthropology, specifically the image of God and the doctrine of sin and how that needs to be our foundation because we really can't understand human sexuality until we begin and start with theological anthropology. So that's that's kind of why, why I wrote it, uh, how this book grew uh, out of that desire to flesh out the concept of homosexuality. Yeah, definitely. I, I thought it was really a, a, a good book. Uh, very personal, very real. You're relatable, but you're also theo- very theologically solid. So I really, really appreciated um, reading that, um, your work. Um, you just touched on theological anthropology. Um, can you explain to us, our listeners, what that term means and why a wrong understanding of theological anthropology has devastating consequences on our understanding of Christian doctrine? Yeah, well, so anthropology is, is, is simply the study of humanity, and that discipline is usually grounded in a, a more of a, a very humanist atheistic approach to humanity. So it's, it's just kind of looking at, at people groups and, and how it's developed over time. Theological anthropology is, is different. It is the study of humanity, but it's study of humanity through the lens of God. Um, if God is our creator, well, he's the one that, that knows us best. And um, so theological anthropology is just study of humanity, who we are as human beings, um, through the lens of God, the lens of God's word. And, and why that is important when it comes to sexuality is because there has been this conflation between sexuality and who we are, our identity, our personhood, our ontology. And because of that confusion, at least for me, um, to begin talks about morality, I think were, were a few steps ahead and, and, and I needed to back up first to get right uh, or at least correct my misunderstanding of who I was. As a gay man, everything about me was gay. Um, that term, I am gay, meant that that is who I am, not what I felt, not what I did, not how I was. So, I, so often I, I say that, uh, you know, being gay uh, or, or this concept of having same-sex attractions or what people, you know, talk about sexual orientation. And I don't like that term, but this, this reality is not, sexuality is not who I am, it's how I am. It's... It's uh, it's part of my experience, and it should never be conflated with that. So it's it's really important to start there, uh, have a correct understanding of who we are, because obviously, if sexual identity is not a correct way to understand who we are, then I need to follow up with well, then what is a correct understanding? And so I begin obviously with Genesis and Genesis one twenty seven, the Imago Dei, the image of God, uh, and that's a great thing. That's a good thing. It gives us everyone value. Everyone, even even our neighbor who identifies as gay, is created in the image of God. But unfortunately, uh, there's more to the, the Bible than just Genesis one, because then we get Genesis three and fall Adam and Eve, and and how do we understand that what how deep are the effects or the consequences of the fall and so i talk about original sin and how you know as you know dave many people don't understand that concept they think well that's that's what adam and eve did that's that's original sin well original sin isn't the sin of adam and eve it's the consequence that flows from that and so as you know someone who's reformed you know we know the the pervasion of the reality of that sin it's not just something you know well you're not so bad, or it's it's pervasive. So uh, realizing that it's not only guilt, uh, but it's a distortion of the image, and hence then necessary to where we come to the coming of Christ, uh, who comes as the perfect image of God, and through being our book of faith in Christ, and through God's grace, that image is now being slowly restored. And so that's 
that it's starting a theological anthropology is so important and for us in understanding the arc of God's grand redemptive story. Uh, and so starting there is, is so key when we're trying to understand sexuality and actually, I believe, any aspect of, of being human. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, how, how else can a person that, you know, I, I'm, I'm somebody that came out of an addiction to pornography, you know, and, you know, have to start with understanding God. God is the one that created us in his image and likeness. If you don't understand that, I mean, you can't understand that there's a difference between uh, a man and a woman and, and God made that difference. Uh, so you have to start with God and mm-hmm. um, and who He is and what He's like, right. and you know you're, you're absolutely right. Well said, well said. Um, you shared a little bit about in the introduction um, about your journey to, to faith in Christ. What does your growth in Christ look like? You know, as you've as you've come to grow, you know, you're a professor now, and, and those kind of been a professor a long time. What does that What does that look like for you? You know? Well, I mean, I, I think initially it, it's really interesting because my my journey is so different. I just had, I knew nothing about Christ and um, the really coming to Christ and then being introduced to the evangelical world. I didn't have the, the I mean the solid kind of faith upbringing with with parents and uh, teaching me God's word. Uh, but sometimes there can be baggage as well. You know, where I think, why are we doing things this way? You know, I feel like this I, I, this not grounded back in scripture, but uh, so it was always, it was kind of culture shock sometimes when I came to faith. And even when I you know started at Moody, that was, I loved that school. Uh, but it was also a culture shock going from a secular uh, big, big 10 state school to then Moody Bible Institute, a smaller Christian school. Uh, but, you know, it was, and, and with all my background, you know, so I, I, that was, um, you know, having lived as a, as a gay man and being, but being raised very, very well. My parents had strong family values and, uh, and, and instilled that in me. Um, I was really a good kid growing up. And just when I became an adult, I, I just kind of went down this, you know, very rebellious route, um, uh, surprised my parents, you know, just, just, you know, this is while I was in dental school. So I was trying to kind of be this uh, successful, worldly, you know, according to the world, uh, pursuing my doctorate in dentistry, and, and yet also living this double life of partying on the weekends and, and being promiscuous selling drugs. And so that was that was really just uh, it, uh, very difficult for my parents, and they didn't know how to handle that. And it was only by God's grace, you know, they came to faith first, then they had to deal with that. It was really just amazing how God is in infinite wisdom. Uh, if, if they weren't Christian, I don't think they would be able to handle any of that. Um, mm. But it was just their silent witness but my I think so after coming to faith my growth I, I think stems a lot of just from that experience of, of, of understanding how to take my past and and learning and growing from that and how God miraculously saved my mind I mean <laughs> With all the drugs that I did, I really shouldn't be able to, to think straight and be able to write any book. But uh, God, I realized that God in his sovereignty allowed, because I know I have friends who, who did as much drugs as, as I did. They Their minds has been affected. Uh, so I think it's important for me to, to take that, that blessing of, of protection. Uh, and so... I would say even the past 10 years, how God has challenged me in different ways. And as, as we talked earlier, Rosario Butterfield, she has been a, a huge part of my growth. And even even this book, when I read her first two books, how she, how she was able to weave in her experience, tie in uh, some wonderful theology, uh, systematic and historical theology, and, and also worldview. I thought, wow, this is so rich and, and it's so deep it's not just kind of talking about the issue real superficial but digging deep and um 
so anyway, she's challenged me and, and helped me to grow into uh, you know who I am now today as a speaker and author, and, and I really thank God. But and of course, you know, my parents, just their faithful witness um, and being. Um, I think my mom and dad are much more the behind the scene, uh, but just I live at home. Praise the Lord, and really love doing that. Living, uh, I believe, kind of more the the biblical way, not the American way, where you're American, you're 18, and you're out of the house. Uh, but I think uh, the way they they would live in in Middle East even today is if you're single, then you're still at home, and I'm a single man. And so I think they they have really helped me to grow as well in in their sometimes simple but very deep uh, uh, ways of following Christ. Mm, that's wonderful. Praise God for you know. Uh, how he uses people in our lives to help us grow. You know, we we all need it. We need uh, we need one another, and your story just testifies to that. So, uh, thank you so much for sharing that. You discuss uh, same sex sex behavior as sin and lust in your book. I, I think that's just absolutely essential. But I also noticed that in the book you stay very close to the scriptures, which I very much appreciate. Um, so the question is, what concerns you most about those on the other side of this issue who don't stick close to the scriptures on these matters? You know, it's interesting because I think the, the the really interesting thing is I think people on the other side would almost argue because oh no no why, you know we we are trying to stay close to the Bible, which which I think is the scary part too. Mm. Um, it's, 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 uh, it's kind of being deceived in a sense, thinking that, uh, how one can be faithful to the text when they're not. So for example, I spent a whole chapter going through Matthew Vines and, and not all of it because there's so much, but I just begin where he began. And I, I talk about where, uh, in the gospel of Matthew and Jesus talks about, uh, you, you will know a tree by its fruit, good fruit or bad fruit. And, and Matthew Vines, who who was a gay-affirming Christian and wrote a book defending his view, which was really nothing new. And even people said, you know, oh, this is a great, it's readable, but it's academic. Um, I, I would say he, he, you know, it's readable. Uh, he, he's, he's a, I think for a young man, he's, he's gifted at, at communicating, but I would definitely not call it academic. Um, He's a sharp guy. went to went to Harvard, uh, but never graduated with a bachelor's, and he still has yet to get any degree. Uh, so I would not call him um, a scholar or an academic. Um, and so he's he's never studied uh, seminary. He's never studied Greek or Hebrew or theology. But he really believes that he's being faithful to the text. And and so I I think it's it's when people try to interpret God's word, but come up. Uh, vastly different understandings, um, and people even who, who hold that God blesses same-sex relationships, they will even argue and 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 say, no, you know, we're we're using context. And and I think there was one time, you know, where I had some social media interaction. I said, you know, well, you, you say you're using context, but there's right way of using context, and there's wrong ways of using context. There's right context, and there's wrong context. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think that I do my best to stick close to a faithful. Reading of God's word, and and I think one of the most important things is to read things canonically. So catching all the intertextual echoes throughout Scripture, especially on these passages, and because that really helps us. I, I tell my students uh, when you read things canonically, it helps put guardrails on your hermeneutics. Because when you don't have those guardrails, it is so easy, and you could try to be sticking close to the text, you try to be interpreting God's word faithfully, but without without catching these intertextual echoes and, and looking into Genesis or looking to. 
Isaiah or Ezekiel or Revelation, uh, whatever it is, to help us uh, to to put some boundaries on what the text could say, because we can almost make any text say whatever it wants. Uh, so that that's key, and, and that's what I try to do uh, in this book as well, not only addressing uh, things broadly through the, the kind of the categories of systematic theology, but then grinding in these important passages. So, for example, I talk about desire uh, and same-sex, same-sex sexual behavior. Obviously, that is sin, but same-sex sexual desire, I think that's where the, some of the argument today is. So, you know, we talk about sides, so Matthew Vines would be one side, but even among those people who say that same-sex relations are sinful, there there's, I would say, what I see as being three categories right now. You have people who would have approaches more of heterosexuality as the goal, uh, kind of uh, a reparative therapy approach where people become uh, saying such attracted by things that happened in their past, which is really disregarding the reality of original sin and our sin nature. So kind of pointing the blame for our simple temptations on our parents, which of course parents do influence their kids, but they are not the cause for original sin or they're not the cause for a child's simple temptations. It's their sin nature. But another side would be people who who kind of approach it as saying, well, my same-sex attractions, uh, the only aspect that's bad is just the sexual part, so the sexual behavior and the sexual desires, but all the other desires are actually good or even sanctifiable, uh, someone will say. And and I completely disagree with that, and I kind of break that down and talking about the desires. Yes, the sexual desires, same-sex sexual desires are sinful, but we can't then lump everything else as not just non-sexual and they're okay. And so I break that down and, and, and talk about same-sex romantic desires. Many lesbian relationships are built on same-sex romantic desires that aren't sexual in nature, physical or erotic in nature, but they are romantic. And that's different from the kind of uh, completely non-romantic, non-sexual, platonic desires of, of same-sex friendship, uh, which I think are, are good. But I wouldn't put them in the category of sexuality because that, and that would make everyone gay. Because if, if you simply have a desire to be a friend with someone of the same sex and that's part of your sexual orientation, well then, that's such a broad a broadening of the concept of sexuality that would make that would make my parents gay and they don't have same sex I would not say that they have same sex desires because they don't have same sex sexual or romantic desires but helping me to do that pointing that the reasons why I, I talk about the telos of desire um, specifically coming out of Jesus articulation in Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Mount uh, you know if you look lustful if a man looks lustfully after a woman he's committed adultery so if the if the end of the desire not only kind of the objective end but the purpose of that end of that desire is sinful then that makes the desire itself sinful um, so I think it was just I, I, knew, I knew I needed to if I'm going to assert something that I needed to kind of ground it uh, closely to the text as well yeah yeah um, I, I appreciate appreciate the the answer that you've given because um as you're talking i'm just thinking as well you know behind the behind the positions that people have are are preconceived ideas as we know you know everybody has an authority we all have an authority whether that's our opinions or you know actually fact you know um you know (laughs) my wife i use this example um many many times my wife is a, a subject matter expert in Pretty much not all things IT, but, you know, IT related. Um, but she doesn't have a master's degree, but she is a IT manager. So she is considered an, a, 
an expert, an, a subject matter expert. Somebody like myself and you um, that have been to seminary and, and teach, people consider us experts. But we know that, uh, you know, we're not like the be all end all. We're not Tom Schreider, okay? We're not like Stephen Wallum or, you know, like there's, we know that we know better than that because we know that even within just knowing things, there's, uh, you know, uh, you know, with at the PhD level, there's, you know, there's the the, the very fine level of knowledge. Um, so, so we know like some, but we don't know like the whole thing. And right. um, some of these people that come to, you just use Matthew Vines as an example. You know, he 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 means well, I'm sure, and you know, he mm-hmm. understands things. Of, you know, we want to give a large benefit of the doubt, and that's good. But when we come to the to the Bible, we we don't come to Matthew Vine's word. We don't come to Dave Jenkins' word. We don't come to Christopher Wan's word. We come to the Word of God. And um, as, as Christians, we've always believed that it's the inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, and authoritative Word. And um, you know, so I mean, just going back to that and staying close to the Scriptures—that's that is the issue, I think, when it comes to this. Are we going to just are we going to have the right view of things? It goes back to our view of the Bible, in other words, and. That impacts how we, you know, interpret. And as you know, I'm telling professor of scripture. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's what I think about that. You're you're absolutely right. Also, yeah, <laughs> I'm just adding to what you're saying. So, uh, in your book, you give a biblical theology of singleness, which you know that is just so fantastic. I just love that part of the book. I I think that it's so that's so neglected, as you know. Um, and you, it's just so helpful. I think people are really going to be helped by that a lot. Um, you know, we, we talk about, Christians talk about marriage. There's a marriage book coming out like all the time. Um, yeah. and, and, and never hardly any on, on singleness. Um, right. you know, I, I see one by Sam Alberry coming out soon here. Um, yes. But uh, they, they, people, they forget that not everybody is, uh, is in the church is, is married. So I just really appreciate that. Um, so how can the local church do better at teaching and supporting singles in our congregation? Yeah, I think it's, it's, um, it's starting with our actions need to flow from knowledge. So our good actions need to flow from good knowledge. I think our, our, what we generally want to do, just our human nature, is we see a problem and want to fix it. Uh, but sometimes we, our fix might not be the correct fix or it might not be uh, coming at it from the correct approach. And that, that's so applicable, especially when it comes to ministry. So, and people might ask, why are you putting two chapters? Because I, I actually put two chapters of marriage, two chapters on singleness in this book on sexuality. And people can say, well, I, I can understand marriage. And, you know, this is on sexuality. Of course, you're going to talk about marriage. But um, it's a little different maybe than what different approach, because I'm, I'm kind of critiquing, in a sense, the evangelical approach or understanding of marriage where we've almost elevated marriage, I believe, higher than what it ought to be. I'm not saying that it's that we need to lower it. I'm just saying sometimes we view it as the end-all, be-all, and that's difficult for people who are single. And, and why I, I'm talking about singleness is because it's difficult for those of us individuals who have sex attractions who many of us um, uh, are not married. And not not all, because God still. I'm I'm open to getting married. I'm I don't believe, and this is why I choose not to use the word celibacy, because I don't. First of all, celibacy is not a uh, it is not a word we find in Scripture. Um, I'm not fully convinced that the Bible even teaches uh, that there is a specific vocation of celibacy. 
uh, people go to First uh, Corinthians seven and and what what Paul is talking about there, Kaleo, in the middle of chapter seven is not talking about uh, a call to singleness. He's talking about the call of salvation. Uh, that whatever condition you find yourself in, whether you're uh, single, free, whether you're born or married, um, that what's more important than than whatever the condition you are in is that you are called to Christ. Um, so this issue of singleness is very pertinent to the issue of sexuality. I don't think we're ready to address this issue of sexuality in our in same-sex attractions until we first redeem biblical singleness. So I think the best way to teach uh, and support is really starting with a correct theology, a, a good, solid, firm, biblical theology of singleness, which means that we understand, uh, and, and I'll have to admit, uh, where I've learned this from is uh, a gentleman named Barry Danilak. I don't know if Dave, if you, if you, if you've ever read him before, but he's brilliant. Um, he's I've never read anything that is touched on singleness better than him. Um, he's his he was a uh, I think an engineer, and then. Um, called the ministry later in life, uh, went to Wheaton for his master's in exegesis, then went to Cambridge to get his PhD and his, did his dissert- he did his dissertation on First Corinthians 7. Um, so Redeeming Singleness is the name of his book uh, put out by Crossway. John Piper wrote the foreword. But he wrote this little, little and that is fantastic, but he wrote this little booklet while he was in, in Cambridge called A Biblical Theology of Singleness. It's probably only 48 pages. You can probably read it in uh, just one sitting. It's very readable but rich and it's it's but it's not so deep that a layman can't can't understand it so anyway that really impacted me greatly to see uh in the broad scope of things god's grand story how singleness in the old testament was obviously not viewed positively and family was upheld as the center of community the center of uh life in israel and children many children were a blessing no children were a curse uh the new testament you still have you know the new testament writers talking about uh marriage and family but then you get statements that that jesus says like um who are my mother and brother and sisters you know and uh, you know, anyone who loves father and mother more than me isn't isn't worthy of you know of, of me. And and so you get all these statements or some of these statements that said, wait, it seems like it's conflicting. And what we need to realize is is in in the broad scope of things is that God is calling us. He, he establishes family, the nuclear family, bound by blood. And then in the new, in the coming of the new covenant, he he shows that this is really just a reflection of the real eternal family, which is the local church, not bound by physical blood, but is bound by the blood of Christ. And so that has great implications for the single man. And it's also looking at Isaiah, when Isaiah is talking about the eunuch, that he's going to give the eunuchs who uh, who obey his commands and obey uh, uh, you know, the Sabbath's will, give them a name better than sons and daughters. And what in the world can be better than sons and daughters when you're Jewish? Well, nothing at that moment until the coming of Christ, who shows that Christ Christ, who was a single man, Paul, who was a single man, had many children, not physical children, but, but spiritual children. And something that Barry Danilak says uh, really blew my mind. And he said, people of the old covenant grew by procreation, but people of the new covenant grow not by procreation, but by regeneration. And 
Knowing that for a single person that we have family, even though the world says we don't have family, even though we don't don't have a spouse, even though we don't have um, children, physical children, um, we have something even better, and that's the church. Unfortunately, many of our churches don't live like family. We don't live like, um, I think we're living like we're in Old Covenant times, that, that everything is about our family and we have to hold things close. And yes, we have some relationships with people, but everything is about our family. And we forget about, no, we're people of the New Covenant. And that means so many things. But one of those things when it comes to relationships is that the real eternal family, the real eternal relationships that we have, that the only ones that will last are the relationships that we have with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, and I think that is the, the that relation, those type of relationships that we have in the body of Christ in our local churches, those should be the ones that are primary and almost everything else is secondary. Um, so when we understand that correctly, and you know, and so I have a chapter in my book, not, not called spiritual friendship, but called spiritual family, because I think that we really don't have the New Testament talking almost anything about friendship in the whole Bible. Very, very, very little, and I think that's on for, for a reason. Because uh, I'm not saying we don't we shouldn't have friends. That's <laughs> obviously not what I'm saying. But the theological concept that the that the Bible is really uh, pushing and 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 helping us to gives framework for is the family. Uh, we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. You can't almost get through a chapter in the New Testament without talking about mentioning, you know, brother or sister. Even First Corinthians 7, that is often used in marriage vows or marriage ceremonies, etc., which which I think is wonderful. Yes, a uh, husband is to love his wife, you know, be patient and kind, etc. But the context of what Paul is talking about there is not between a husband and wife, it's actually in the body of Christ, in the family of God. So anyway, understanding that will hugely, I think, reshape our, our the way that we minister to singles in our congregations, because a single person is not just an individual, it's not even just a friend. That's my brother, that's my sister, and to be able to, kind of like Rosario talks about in her, in her book, uh, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, that what more powerful way to express that in a tangible way that when you have a single friend that you've not only invited to your family to give them a house key and say, come anytime that my house is your house. You know, you are part of our true family. So anyway, that I think having starting with a, a correct understanding of singleness, a true, a true biblical and theological framework for singleness is the best way that to propel us into ministering to singles among us, uh, not only not singles, but those who have same sex attractions. Yeah. Yeah, we got to do a better job um, of just caring for one another, seeing yeah. each other as we as we are in Christ, which you just said so well. Um, you know, it's amazing. Over 50 times in the New Testament, we're told to one another each other. And how often do you hear... How often do you hear that taught and, and people talking about that? Because if we understand right. that, we're going to understand how to do life with one another. Um, we're going to understand uh, how to live under the gospel, live as church members, um, you know, interact with each other in a more charitable way. And But yeah, I remember, I remember as you were talking, just as a, as a single guy, um, I remember wanting to have a wife and that being like 
that was a huge thing in my 20s. But uh, I just remember, you know, thinking like, you know, there's not a really a, a guideline for, I mean, scripture tells us how we're supposed to behave and how to live, but there's not really very many examples of this in like the church with, with single guys. And, um, you know, just in general, there's not a lot of help out there for, for single guys um, to right. learn to become a man and um, to be be the man that God wants you to be. And, you know, so... I just appreciate the the voice and the and the the help that you're providing um, in on this section of the book. So thank you, brother. Um, you know, growing up in Seattle, I told you uh, I knew many people who identified as as gay. They were they were my friends. They were my even my teachers. Um, what are some things that Christians should do, and what are some things um, that Christians shouldn't do as they seek to minister to those who are identifying as gay? Well, I think. It's understanding the language of the unbeliever, understanding the language of someone who identifies as gay. Because I start my book out talking about identity, this is such a core part of who they are. Um, and I think we need to don't jump to or feel like we have to jump to talk about uh, sin and the behavior. Because uh, they just want to understand that when we begin talking about sin, because they see this as who they are, what they hear is not that, oh, what I'm doing is sinful. What they hear is the entirety of my person is sin, and that is offensive to someone. So uh, I'm not saying trying to never talk about sin. That's not what I'm saying. But I think what we need to first talk about is who we are and hopefully get at in point two when we're talking about who we are. Well, that's also we need to then talk about who God sees it says we are. Um, and so understanding that for a person who identifies as gay, they've conflated sexuality with ontology or sexuality with personhood. Um, I wouldn't use terms like lifestyle, choice, because I never use those words, uh, but it assumes that people see their sexuality not as who they are, but as how they are. And people who identify as gay don't see it. They strictly see it as who they are. Um, there's a phrase also that Christians love, but non-Christians hate, and it's love the sin or hate the sin. I, I, I often tell people, say, uh, you know, do it, but don't say it. And I think that uh, I often see people making that mistake. Um, and, and even when you're talking about sexuality with, with your gay friend, don't feel like you have to answer every question that they ask. Because sometimes the question that they're asking, first of all, isn't framed right, or they're not asking the right question. I, I look at the example of Jesus throughout the Gospels. He did not answer every question. Well, often he would answer with a different question or answer with a question. And because when people ask a question, they're they're trying to make put an emphasis on what isn't the most important things. Like, for example, they will ask, do you think this is sin? Well, convincing people that this is sin is not the most important thing. The most important thing is for, for them to first know who God is, know who they are, and know who Christ is, and put their faith in Him. Because it's only through the Holy Spirit working in us and abiding in us that we're in, our minds can be renewed. I mean, that's no way to of the fall. So I think those are just kind of just some simple things. And I and I mentioned a few more things of what not to do. But I think what, what things to do, it's, first of all, I, I look at the example of my mother, who she she was a prayer warrior. And a lot of people say, you know, are just so grateful and, and for her and as an example and, and say, wow, you're, you have so much faith. And she always answers, says, no, I have very little faith. That's why I knew that I needed just, I was so desperate that she was continually beseeching God and asking him to, to not forget me, you know, like the persistent widow. And, 
Uh, she would fast every Monday for seven years, eight, seven, eight years. She fasted once at 39 days, and it was really just out of desperation. Um, and we really lost these very important habits of grace that we need to, that, that help us put, put ourselves in the path of God's grace to renew ourselves first. So I think prayer is really important. Just keep, we, we don't pray enough for, for our lost friends. We don't pray enough for the gay community and mm-hmm. um, start there, but also being a good listener um, and not, when you listen to someone's story, that doesn't mean you're condoning it. Uh, when you ask about the well-being of someone's partner, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're condoning it. I think it's just communicating that you're interested in that person's life and I think that's a good way to build trust how you respond you, you don't have to say I'm happy for you you know so so it's you can you can listen but you need to engage I wouldn't say I'm happy for you you could say um, I see that person's make you makes you happy that's a good way to uh, at least affirm uh, their experience but not affirm their behavior. But I think we need to share the gospel just through our own actions first. We need to live the gospel before the before we preach the gospel, just as my parents did. They never pointing out that I was living in sin. I knew what they believed. They had told me, you know, just maybe once or twice, you know, just through, it wasn't, and it wasn't even pointed at me. I, I, I knew what they believed, but they didn't need to keep reminding. And I think sometimes parents think they need to keep reminding their kids. We don't have to. Uh, most, I would say, almost 99% of the time, our kids know what we believe. But what they doubt is that we love them because the world says that parents, Christian parents, don't love their gay children. So I think it's 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 really showing and reflecting Christ, as I saw in my parents. It, I tell parents that they need to really practice the spiritual gift of waiting. Mm. It's God who changes a heart. And our job is not to be passive or, or inactive or apathetic, but really sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading. Uh, but it needs to be the Holy Spirit who leads and goes before us first, but us to then be obedient to that. And sometimes it's that silent witness, just as Esther Ken Smith Rosario Butterfield. He never really uh, preached the gospel, but she saw the gospel. She saw God's word lived out and the faithfulness of that gospel witness. Um, so, uh, so many times people say, well, I don't know if I'm doing enough. And it's like, well, how do you measure enough? <laughs> we often measure it by our human standards, uh, but God works in his way. If, if we are very sensitive to the Holy Spirit and, and being renewed in, uh, in God's grace, every moment and really focusing on our own uh, daily union with Christ, I think that will really compel us in the right way of how we need to be responding and sometimes how we just need to be waiting. I think that your counsel there is just so, it's so right. Um, So right. I I can tell you, I had many people come up to me and just want to talk. And then they would ask, like, why do you think the way that you do? You know, why? Because they see how I'm living and and how I interact with other people. You know, and I think the other thing just to add to what you said is when that when that opportunity comes, you know, don't use that as a the platform just to start preaching, you know. So they've opened up. they, They see that your life is different. Okay. So they know that there's something different about you and you're, you're living for Christ and you're, you're standing on his word and on the grace of God and everything. Um, so now, now you need to make sure that you're listening to what they're saying and ask lots of questions. Just ask lots of questions. We, uh, we as Christians, um, I've been a Christian my whole life. Rosaria says, um, you were the kind of Christian growing up in the church that I would have been intimidated and scared by. 
And I'm like, get out of here. Like, no way. Because uh, I was totally the opposite. In high school, I was the guy that went around to everybody and, and just tried to get to know everybody. And, you know, yeah, I had a Bible with me, but I wasn't like, well, maybe a little bit. Um, you know, maybe a little bit that way. But, you know, now I'm just like, whatever, you know. But, yeah, that, that's what we have to do. We just have to listen. And we have to ask questions. And, and that'll provide plenty of opportunity as you get into people's lives. We can we need to use good social skills. We, we don't do that um, right. well as Christians. And, you know, the Bible has much to say about that, too, uh, about our, our communication. Um, so, yeah, you're absolutely right. I just love that. Thank you so much. Um, how should the local church read out, reach out to those who have same-sex attraction? Well, I think uh, it's, it's realizing that it's, it's not uh, you know, an issue out there, but uh, we have faithful Christians who, who are wrestling with their sin nature. Of course, that shouldn't surprise us because everyone's wrestling with their sin nature um, in the body of Christ and not be surprised that, that it is in our church. And unfortunately, many of them feel like they can't share with someone. Uh, so I think it's it's just a simple fact of knowing it's, this is, it, again, I'm going back to kind of how we started this podcast on theological anthropology. If, if we start there knowing it's sin that's the problem, <laughs> it's it's our sin nature, original sin, and flows from that is actual sin and indwelling sin, then we know that this one particular uh, expression of one's sin nature, though maybe a little different, uh, uh, or maybe a lot different from from someone else's. At the at the core, at the root, the issue is sin, and then that makes it no different than other sins. And that, that there's just a, a there's a democratization that happens when we consider sin. Uh, that I I can't look at someone else who's struggling with some other sin as you know a person who has three heads. It's just yes, that sin expression might look differently than mine, but I know at the end of the day. The problem is sin, and Christ is the answer. So starting there with good theological anthropology helps us then to better understand and walk alongside my sister and brother who is same-sex attraction. So I think that's that's important. But being able to, I think we need to get out of this this expert mentality that I can only help someone who has same-sex attractions if I have same-sex attractions myself. Because oftentimes I hear people that say, well, um, you know, can you meet with this guy? Um, he just shared with me he had same-sex attractions, but I don't know what to do because I don't have same-sex attractions myself. And I said, well, do you know Christ? <laughs> have you struggled with sin before? Have you been victorious over sin? You know, and, and, and he's like, well, yeah. And I said, well, you should be able to help another sinner. Because so, why is it? Or since when do we have to know everything about a specific sin struggle or struggle with that sin ourselves to help another one with that sin struggle? Like I say in my book, do we have to shoot up with heroin to help a heroin addict? Um, does a person have to look at pornography to help another person who's has a pornography addiction? You know, does a does a man have to cheat on his wife to help someone caught in adultery? And I would I would argue and say no. If you are a follower of Christ, if you have experienced the grace of God, if you know your sin, you know, the depravity of your own sin, and if you had even some victory over your sin, you should be able to, you you should be able to help another believer who's wrestling with sin. Because what a person needs most is not an expert, but 
what they do need is a friend, another brother in the Lord, another sister in the Lord, really just to walk alongside them. Because sometimes we don't have to give them all the answers. I mean, we look at Joe and all his friends. <laughs> they were doing fine when they were silent. They didn't say anything for seven days. It wasn't until they opened their mouth, that's when all the trouble, you know, uh, began coming. And sometimes just being that friend, just being present, being able to walk with them and, and simply sometimes just praying with someone, crying with them can be a huge burden off of someone's shoulder. And I think that can be really meaningful and helpful. Also helping them to, to realize that their identity needs to be in Christ. Again, kind of going back, to, I guess I keep going back to this theological anthropology, hopefully the for your listeners to hear the, how important this is, uh, because people who have same-sex attractions hear the world telling them, this is who you are, uh, but we, we so clearly see that who we are is not bound up in what we feel or do, but our, our identity, everything that we are is bound up in Christ. And that's, you know, you know, sometimes people say, well, identity in Christ is a modern concept. And I said, well, not really. I mean, union with Christ has been talked about for, you know, theologians have been talking about that forever in Christ, in Christ, over and over in Him throughout the New Testament. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the identity in Christ. It's union with Christ um, that uh, that is key, that needs to be reminded of by everyone, not just those who have same such attractions. You said it so well there, brother. Um, just really appreciate that. You know, it, it is an issue of identity. And, you know, if you're growing in your identity in Christ, you're going to want to help somebody. You know, you're going to want to walk alongside your fellow struggler, beggar, as Luther said, of, of grace as we are. And, uh, you know, you're going to have that desire to, to do it. You know, there's a, there's a lot that we could really talk about, about all of these subjects. Uh, I mean, all these questions could really be an episode in themselves, as you know. So just as we wrap this up, what are you, like your biggest takeaways that you want listeners to take away as they, you know, they've listened to our conversation now and they're getting ready to pick up your book? What do you want them to take away from this? Well, I think it's, it's really reframing um, what we... And, and when I say reframe, I'm not I'm not trying to come up with anything new. It's actually kind of correctly framing. So it's not reframing, but correctly framing this conversation um, through the lens of scripture, through the clear uh, categories of theology, which is uh, you know not theology is not something just reserved for for people who sit around you know in seminaries and libraries, but it's simply knowledge of God. Uh, but but framing it in, in these good categories of theology and framing them in in, in texts that are exegeted and, and, and interpreted correctly. Um, and it's it's really understanding who we are and starting there that that the, that the issue is faith in Christ and then union with Christ. And um, when we understand it in the way, it, it just kind of brings clarity and everything. Like, for example, and, and I guess this will maybe be the takeaway, um, what, what we hear today over and over, not only this is who I am, but this is the way I'm born. I, I, I'm, I'm born this way, right? There's a song by Lady Gaga, Born This Way. And it's, been, it's such an assumption that that is, that is true, even though science is not even close to, to finding any conclusive evidence on that. Uh, we have assumed that, and that sometimes 
stumps Christians. Uh, what do we say? What do we do? And again, I think it comes back to identity in Christ, union with Christ, faith in Christ, because our gay friends, their biggest problem isn't their sexuality. Their biggest issue is unbelief. So when people say, this is the way I'm born, this is, you know, I'm born this way. Well, we, we need to realize what Christ says uh, in John chapter 3 of his gospel, that even though we think we're born a certain way, even though people think they're born gay, the gospel of John, Jesus says you must be born again. So whether you think you're born a porn addict, whether you don't think you're born a, a liar or a cheater, or you whether you think you're born gay, you must be born again. You must be born from above. This is a this is a a, a, a work that we can't do on our own. It is it is rebirth, spiritual rebirth, and that's nothing is more gospel centered than that. So as we think about uh, our gay friend, we need to remember uh, that uh, it's not fixing them up and cleaning them up or turning them straight or whatever it is that is of most importance. It is really the gospel. It is faith in Christ and bringing them, pointing them to God, who is the only one that can bring this new spiritual rebirth. Mm, amen, brother. That is the hope that we have to share and to spread for the glory of God. Amen. Amen. Well, I, I really uh, have enjoyed uh, our conversation today, Chris. It's been really fun and uh, just a joy to get to know you. Uh, it's uh, always good to be able to talk with people that I follow on Twitter and, and get to know them a little bit. So. Thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. Thanks, Dave. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that you were encouraged by today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. For more uplifting and thought-provoking content, please visit us online at servantsofgrace.org. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Servants of Grace and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Servants of Grace. We hope you have a blessed day and we will see you next time.